Hello and welcome to The Correspondent, a podcast brought to you by the Foreign Correspondents Club here in Hong Kong. My name is Genevieve Alexander, Associate Governor at the FCC, and you're about to hear a lunchtime talk originally recorded and posted to our FCC Hong Kong YouTube channel. It's titled, What Really Happened to Flight MH370? Former FCC President Florence de Changer shares what really happened to flight MH370, a voyage that never reached its destination in Beijing, and a mystery that captivated the world. This is Keith Richberg, I'm the president of the club, welcome. Uh, glad we're able to do this, really. Uh, well, we're back to, what, six people per table and these fancy glass partitions again. Hopefully that won't last too long, but thankfully we're able to do this event. Uh, we've uh, we've been, had to cancel a few of our evening events, uh, as I think you know, like our film screening that was scheduled for uh, last, last night. Uh, we will reschedule that, so please keep an eye on the website. Uh, and it's a really cool new website if you haven't checked it out yet. It's FCCHK.org. Uh, and as you know, because of the new uh, coronavirus restrictions in Hong Kong, we are closing for in-service dining at 6 p.m. However... You can still get our great FCC food, wine, and beer. Uh, uh, the the uh, famous uh, byline beer for takeout. And takeout is open until around 9 p.m. So definitely come in and get your orders in so that you can't eat in. Take the FCC home with you. Uh, the You know, sometimes things are really worth a wait. Uh, sometimes really it's good to wait for things. This talk has been about well, basically about six years in the making, as I understand, uh, because this book actually came out in 2016 uh, in French, and we were first going to have the talk then, when we, then it later came out in the Chinese edition. Finally, it came out in the uh, English edition, and we were going to have this talk last year, but uh, because of the same virus restrictions we're dealing with now, we've had to postpone it. But fortunately, we're able to do it now, and uh, I want to thank our, our guest speaker, who you all know for being so patient about this. Uh, as you all know, it's been almost eight years since Malaysian flight uh, MH370 vanished on its way to Beijing, creating what was uh, what remains one of the world's greatest mysteries. But as you know, uh, it's almost impossible uh, in this day and age for a plane to completely vanish from the face of the planet. And our guest is going to tell us how uh, there's a lot more to this story than we knew. And she's going to be talking about her fantastic book, The Disappearing Act, The Impossible Case of MH370. I said you all, I, 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 I always wanted to say this, but our guest needs no introduction, uh, because she was the president of the club here before. Florence de Changis has been based in the Asia-Pacific region for the last 30 years as a correspondent for Le Monde and RFE, uh, that's Radio France Internationale. And uh, The Disappearing Act was first published, this English edition published in 2021. And it's a UK bestseller and was named Best 10 Books of the Year by the literary magazine Strong Words. And uh, Florence is a uh, French and New Zealand uh, resident. So without further ado, uh, Florence de Changy. Thank you, Thank you uh, Keith, for uh, welcoming me uh, today. You know, I think uh, all of you here uh, know how dear this club is to me, and uh, I'd like to take this opportunity to thank you, Keith, for what uh, you do and what you say as the president of the FCC. As a journalist in Hong Kong, we have witnessed the last years of uh, freedom for Hong Kong, freedom 
in its uh, usual common meaning, and uh, we're now entering a phase of improved freedom that we shall uh, navigate the best we can and which makes our work uh, more difficult but also more uh, important than before. Having said that, it is indeed the first time in my 15 years as a journalist based in Hong Kong that I stand here not as a host but as a guest and uh, it makes me uh, both proud and uh, delighted. So thank you very much for hosting me finally, uh, Keith, and thank you all for uh, your uh, presence. So I'm here today um, to talk to you about the disappearance of AB777, which is the safest plane in the history of civil aviation with 239 people on board, including three babies, in one of the most, if not the most, strategic and monitored region of the planet. So people say this is incredible. I say this is not credible. I find that it is an insult to human intelligence to pretend that this B777 with 239 people on board could simply disappear. Because a B777 does not simply disappear and 239 people do not simply disappear without a trace, even in the middle of the ocean, in a day and age where you can basically see an apple on the moon. But erasing traces leaves traces. And in this investigation, where so many traces have been erased, I had to work with basically the traces of erased traces. Now, most of you, if you've not read my book, probably think that the plane crashed in the Southern Indian Ocean off the coast of Australia, where it was apparently a search with great means and at great cost. You may vaguely remember the story of a U-turn um, above the Gulf of uh, Thailand, and a suicidal pilot who had rehearsed a fatal ghost flight on his simulator, right? And maybe you remember also a handful of debris that turned up on the west coast of Africa. Well, these are, in essence, the highlights of what I call the official narrative. And I'm afraid to disappoint you or just tell you that based on my research, none of this, none of this is neither true nor accurate. In fact, um, in my book, I establish beyond doubt that, first of all, Captain Zahari Shah was not just a sane, happy, healthy, wealthy, good man. He was one of the best pilots of Malaysia Airline, who could never have planned anything nefarious if you look into him a little bit. I met someone in Malaysia who told me that if ever he was on a flight with a plane in trouble, he would have wanted Zahari and no one else in the cockpit. And so I'm, I'm convinced basically that uh, the pilot would have actually done his very best to save his plane and his passengers 
And by the way, when you think of it, counting on an excellent pilot in the cockpit considerably reduces the possibilities of what may have happened to the plane. Second of all, I also established that MH370 did not U-turn at the waypoint of Igari, um, and I'll just like to list some damning evidence of that, because you understand the U-turn is key in the whole demonstration of the official narrative. If the plane did not U-turn, there is no nothing that makes the official narrative hold. So first of all, the plane was spotted by primary radars at the next waypoint that you see on this map, which is called BTOD. Again, and that's why I'm showing this piece, which is out of the formal investigation technical report. So if the plane was seen by primary radar at BTOD, it can't, it simply can't have turned at Agari. It's as if you exit, the, you're still in the metro at Central, you can't have exit at one shy or Amorty. It's as simple as that. So this U-turn doesn't hold. Now, another reason the U-turn doesn't work is, is also because the U-turn, as described, is essentially beyond the capabilities of a B777. And again, this is established in the technical report. Another reason is that none of the many US military ships and planes of the 7th Fleet that monitor the region 24-7 neither saw or provided any proof of that U-turn. Actually, none of the countries whose airspace was supposedly penetrated could provide a proof that MH370 flew in their airspace, not even a statement. They didn't even say, we saw MH370 in our airspace, let alone provided any, any proof of it. Actually, Indonesia said that they saw MH370 going up to Igari and Bitod, but they never saw it uh, going back. Now, another reason which is uh, striking is the fact that uh, the military base, which is based in uh, Penang, um, of um, several uh, countries of the region, and which is under Australian command, did not scramble any jet, which is obviously what would have happened if a massive rogue plane like a B777 non-identified had flown overhead. I'll give you one more example, but there are even more uh, about uh, the radar data and images that supposedly existed showing a plane flying above Malaysia. Well, two things about that. Number one, uh, the data reported in the same official report after a, a few pages after the, the image you have on the screen, the data are completely inconsistent with a B777. I show them to several B777 pilots. They say, I don't know what you're showing me. This, this is not, this makes no sense. It can't be a B777. As for the images that were never publicly released, and a few people have seen them, and I've seen a confidential report of someone who had seen this image, the person also said, all I can say is that it's not at all a B777. So there might have been a plane flying above Malaysia at that time, but it was certainly not MH370. So now I'm sure you've understood that if the plane did not uh, U-turn and did not fly over Malaysia, obviously 
there was no more ghost flight after Sumatra and no crash in the Southern Indian Ocean. Now, regarding the crash in the Southern Indian Ocean, uh, it should also be obvious that it did not happen there. Why? First of all, there was never any debris spotted on the surface of the Southern Indian Ocean after the crash. Not a single body, no life jacket, no wings, no piece of fuselage. Contrary to all plane crashes in the sea that normally produce millions of debris. And after that, there was also no field of debris that was ever found at the bottom of the ocean either. You could think that they've got it so wrong about spotting the place where it happened that they completely missed two or three massive fields of debris. It's, it's beyond reason, but let's say that. At least, eventually, all of this falls at the bottom of the ocean, right? And none of the massive search, uh, three years by the, under Australian leadership, and in 2018 by Ocean Infinity, they could find no, nothing at the bottom of the ocean where they said that this crash took place, right? And of course, there was also not, not a single witness on a ship, on an oil rig, on other planes. No one saw MH370 during the two plus hours of daylight above the southern Indian Ocean before or during it is its supposed uh, fall there. So these are just some of the arguments and blatant evidence of why I now think and dare to say that the official narrative is simply a narrative. In other words, a fabrication. You could say a lie. And in that fabrication, the search in Australia was simply a diversion. Because magicians all know that in a great vanishing act, you need a great diversion. And actually, I dedicate a whole chapter uh, in the book explaining why the Australian search was just circus. I am aware all this sounds a bit shocking, all the more for uh, a mainstream media journalist like me. It is an inconvenient and embarrassing conclusion to reach. Yet it is a conclusion based on a cluster of corroborating clues, a fair share of them provided by the very official technical investigation report of the accident that is available for anyone to download and read, as well as by the thousands of pages of documents that I had access to, that I studied, the dozens if not hundreds of uh, people I met over the years, and the years of the simply research and uh, investigation, piecing together remnants of truths that I've collected or that were uh, shared, uh, shared with me. But I must also tell you that before I started looking seriously into that story, I was like everyone else. And uh, when I was first sent to Kuala Lumpur uh, in March 2014 to cover the story for uh, Le Monde, um, and after the initial two or three weeks, once it was confirmed that the plane had gone south and there were supposedly satellite pictures of large debris on the surface of the ocean, 
which, which didn't prove to be anything related to MH370, but it's what we were told at the time. I just thought like everyone else, that's it. It will take another few days, maybe a week, uh, because it's very far and remote. And then they will find one or two fields of floating debris, and they will find bodies, sadly, but 239 bodies don't disappear. And from there, they will locate the crash point, etc. right? So initially, I didn't have too much second thought about it. Yes, it was messy and confusing. Uh, but having lived in Malaysia for uh, several years, it was not that surprising. And um, also, as journalists, uh, we are not trained to doubt or to question statements that come from credible, serious sources. And in this instance, I know some people say, yeah, but it was Malaysia, etc. No, you probably don't realize that the information establishing the crash in the southern Indian Ocean came mostly not from Malaysia, though Malaysia was the speaker, so to say, but the base from the official uh, narrative actually came from the UK government and its investigation bureau, the AAIB, the Air Accident Investigation uh, Branch, as well as the White House, which, by any standards, are considered pretty solid sources, to say the least. And, but if you pay attention to the statements by uh, Malaysian PM Najib at the time, he very often quoted the AAIB, who has worked on the data provided by a UK satellite communication firm called Inmarsat. Maybe he was just washing his hands, but basically every time he had an important uh, statement to make about uh, the plane is here, now we are sure the plane is there, he would always say, the EAIB told me, etc., which I find very uh, important to, uh, to note. So after these two key sources to the official narrative, the White House and the UK government, we heard from the Australian government, and eventually 16 months later we heard from the French government when a debris eventually appeared in reunion. So what I want to say here is that I had no reason initially to question or to doubt the facts and evidence that were uh, presented to us, the mainstream media, by these most established sources. And it took me a very long time to come to terms with the possibility that all that narrative, which I call the official narrative, was not true, a fabrication, a lie. Actually, Barack Obama used the words an outrage of unspeakable proportion for MH17. And I think these words fit MH370 very well, too. Now, people often ask uh, me what made me smell a rat in uh, this file. And it's been uh, very progressive and almost uh, Painful. As I told you, initially I was like, well, it's not, a, it's not a perfect narrative, but it's probably true, and more evidence will come. Yet, I had a few little red flags which were haunting me. Like, at the very beginning, uh, the Chinese ambassador told the Chinese families gathered in uh, Malaysia, it is very complicated, you cannot understand. That's not something you say if you sincerely don't know where the plane is, which was the official situation during the first few days. 
After that, I had someone very close to Ishamuddin Hussein, the Minister of Defense and Transport at the time, telling me that the White House was calling every day. Why would the White House call every day for a civil plane just uh, lost? Then there was the former head of the Indonesian um, police telling the press a few months later that he knew from his counterpart in Malaysia what had really happened to MH370, clearly implying that it was not at all what we were being told. There was also an intelligence source uh, who told Guilain Watrolo, who is the French uh, man who lost his wife and two of his children on the plane, that there were two US AWACS on site that night and that the Americans knew exactly what had happened, but he could not say anything else. And then I met the nephew of uh, the pilot who told me that a friend of his who was now working for the Ministry of Defense had told him when he met her at a wedding function in uh, Kuala Lumpur, I'm very sorry for your uncle, they are collateral damage, that's all I can tell you. So all these little red flags, but none of these were proof, nor smoking gun per se. They were, at best, indication of where the truth may be, but not much more. Yet I suppose they got me started and uh, they kept me going. And once I got started, I got uh, access to confidential documents. Some people talked to me or uh, sent me hints, and step by step, I got to where I am now with the certainty that the truth is completely different than what we have been told and that the truth is owed, owed first and foremost to the families of the 239 passengers, but also to anyone who ever boards a plane with the pretty basic hope of landing safely. I obviously have uh, no time to talk you through my entire investigation. As Keith said, it lasted almost eight years because it's still ongoing. Um, nor, nor to explain um, the, my even more shocking findings. I may have uh, two in the, in the Q&A. But now, in the few minutes or so that I've got left, and because we are in a press club, I would like to very quickly uh, look at why and how this official narrative which I have proven to be uh, fabricated, has managed to be so pervasive and is now so ingrained in the general understanding of this event. Because by now, despite everything I just mentioned um, that should have made it impossible for the official narrative to take shape, most people, and I suppose most people in this room as well, have built up a vague certainty that this official narrative that I just summed up is more or less the truth. And that's what really puzzles me. How did we get to that point where we accept such a nonsensical narrative? So yes, we are a bit too gullible, but to be fair, that official narrative has also been forced fed on us on a very regular basis without you even realizing it. And I'm sorry to say, the mainstream media, which I'm part of, have played a role in this. From the very first days, actually, the official narrative took shape with so-called scoops 
by very most established media. And in the course of these last eight years, many, many stories have been published, sometimes, again, in some of the best media you can name. And all of them have reiterated two things. The captain is somehow responsible, and the crash took place in the Southern Indian Ocean. These are the two key elements that you could find in any story that has been published in the last eight years, basically. And these two elements, as I've said, I'm probably the only one to uh, bluntly and uh, very clearly say are wrong. But you know, planting and uh, growing a false conviction in our brain is a bit like the COVID vaccine. You need your first dose, then a second dose, then a booster, then a second dose of booster to make sure that the official narrative sticks with you. So now I suggest we quickly look at the latest uh, booster episode of this process. Um, and I'm very lucky that uh, there was one because recently you must have heard, because it was even played on the, the BBC, that the real final point of MH370 crash had been established by a great scientist, a British aerospace engineer, uh, who was claiming to be the first scientist to think laterally to solve the enigma and could therefore announce with great confidence the exact location of the hull of the plane. Actually, last September, I caught up with uh, Guylain Watrelo, the, the Frenchman I mentioned before, and we asked ourselves, half-jokingly, what breaking news nonsense will appear next? And we didn't have to wait uh, long because um, I, I had actually already been receiving alerts of an empty episode of a new story. So that's the case study I would like to quickly go through uh, now. Um, and I will show it to you. And by the way, as a caveat, I'd like to say that I honestly don't mean to point the finger at anyone in particular. This story happens to be a BBC. But uh, I, I think that good journalists make honest mistakes. Um, and, uh, but, oops, but the fact that that story uh, was relayed by uh, the BBC and therefore gave it a worldwide exposure uh, is very telling and very problematic too. So a few things that I'll highlight about this story. Well, it's the BBC. The source, a British aeronautical engineer. So that sounds pretty solid, right? And then uh, he's done lateral thinking, so that sounds brilliant. And of course, the conclusion, which is actually extraordinary. Um, sorry, the, okay, so that's what he did. They even have another uh, scientist to back him. And uh, okay, what, uh, yeah, so that's the conclusion with the exact position. 33 degrees south, 95 degrees east. Isn't that amazing? All we have to do is to go and get the, the, the hull now. He knows. So at first sight, it looks like a pretty good story. I think most of us would fall for it. But it's actually not that good at all. First, the source of the story, described as a British aeronautical engineer, I'm afraid the only accurate part about the description is British. <laughs> because 
The author of this new theory is not at all an engineer, let alone an aeronautical engineer. In fact, Richard Godfrey is simply no scientist, never was. According to his own LinkedIn profile, he got a Bachelor of Science 50 years ago, and he has mostly been an IT consultant with banks. So the scientist quoted by the BBC is basically one of the many MHists, as I call them, who are passionate about the mystery of MH370. There is absolutely nothing wrong with that, but that does not make him a British aerospace engineer, let alone a credible source, a lead source of information for a BBC story. Now, there is another problem with that story. It is a seven months old story. Interestingly, seven months before the BBC picked it up, it had already been mentioned online on the Express and the Daily Stars. Not exactly, you know, your uh, top of the... But anyway, they did it. And what's interesting is that even the Express here found someone to dismiss the work of the other aerospace British engineer. And he says uh, basically that um, Mr. Godfrey's understanding of the method he was claiming to use uh, was um, he played down the accuracy and uh, basically he says it falls short. Okay, so um, not only the story was published seven months before, but it was dismissed at the time by uh, these uh, tabloids. So since I was really puzzled that this U-turn nonsense could be promoted by the BBC, I had a look at a blog uh, which is hosted by um, an American writer and commentator on aviation stories called Jeff Weiss. And his blog is a hub for rather educated amateurists, I believe. And I was curious to see what they were saying about it. So in June, as you can see, someone is asking him, what do you think of this? And he replies, I think this stuff is deeply unhinged. I'm not seeing anyone taking it seriously. Wow, in June, right? And then in November, so a few weeks before uh, the BBC, and actually it's not just the BBC, very other big newspapers like I think the Sunday Times and the Times picked up that story. Again, they ask him, what does he make of Richard Godfrey? And, well, you read for yourself, right? He seems to spend an enormous... Oh, well, he says it seems absolutely bonkers. I find Godfrey a very peculiar case. He seems to spend an enormous amount of time and energy doggedly cooking up scientific-sounding, but basically ludicrous ideas about NH370. This is still referring to the same uh, story. Now... You must all be wondering, how on earth does such a quack story find its way to the BBC? But you know what? It was um, in quite a few other established uh, media, as I just said, uh, and I tried to trace it back uh, to see where did it actually come from. It originated on this website, which is called Airline Ratings, which is a website uh, whose content is mostly made of official airlines' uh, press statements and pictures with almost no editing. 
um, but that provide that website provides a very thin varnish of credibility, I think, uh, though it does not uh, take long to see that it just acts, in my opinion, as an echo chamber for any MH stories that would have the final crash in the Southern Indian Ocean and that would accuse the pilot. The pilot. And uh, I also noticed that this website uh, seems to publish any news related to whatever flotsam or jetsam you can find or is found on the African coast that could vaguely be associated with MH370. So it's possible that hosting these theories may just be used as clickbait and you know, a marketing strategy to attract traffic. But if any media outlet was ever used to promote and reinforce over the years the official narrative of a crash in the southern Indian Ocean, um, this one has been doing a perfect job in uh, basically providing what I call the first level of news laundering. That's where, for example, for the first time, the MHist that you saw before was called an aerospace engineer. So he was christened an aerospace engineer on airline ratings, then it makes it easy for the next one who picks up the story to call him the same thing. And um, the host of this website actually goes some time on Australian TV channels and he pushes the MH370 uh, story a lot. And so eventually, with several months, almost a year of hard pushing and some stepping stone in between, you know, the tabloids first and the times, it got... Oh, yeah, no, there was another uh, step in between, which was actually when it was picked by the very uh, prolific Australian correspondent of the Times. And that undoubtedly gave, him, gave the, the story what I would call the second level of news laundering. And after that, the story must have looked clean enough to be picked up by any other established mainstream media in urgent need of a slightly sensational headline. And that's how this quack theory eventually made it to the BBC, the summit of credibility and newsworthiness, right? So one must admit that if there is a PR campaign of disinformation at play here, whose job is to, and it is actually success, uh, successfully in it, uh, in, whose job is basically to reiterate the official narrative of MH370, whilst maintaining a very thick smoke screen to what truly happened, they do a very good job. So I'll just conclude for now by saying that I really hope that the truth, when it comes out 100%, because I think my book makes it come out 90%, will be as well covered. Thank you very much. Thank you. Do you want to stay there or do you want to uh, have a seat? Um, as you want. As you like. <laughs> Maybe there. You're, yeah. Yeah, okay, I stand. Yes, thank you. Thanks very much. Uh, I had a couple of questions and we'll open it up to the, to the floor. Thanks for the presentation. Uh, the book is, is a fantastic read. I mean, it's like a, like a detective story, the way you kind of peel the layers off and an amazing amount of research in there. Uh, you had a couple of witnesses in the book who you didn't discuss, I know for time, a guy named Michael McKay who saw something that night, and then someone later on named Christian Corsell, a Canadian, yeah. 
just talk about them briefly and what they saw, because that's yeah. kind of crucial to the argument that the plane did not make a U-turn. Um, Michael McKay was a New Zealand um, engineer, I think a real engineer, but I didn't check his uh, degree, working on an oil rig um, east of Vietnam. And uh, very quickly after he heard that MH370 had been lost, he wrote a very detailed email describing the, what he saw that night in the sky, which looked to him like uh, a plane on fire. So that was very important, and uh, many media tried to trace him uh, back because he was immediately dismissed from his job. He was sent back home in New Zealand, and um, a friend of mine who tried to contact him had the most peculiar exchange with him when uh, he finally met him there. The impression he got is that this man was either protected or under surveillance, or both. But in any case, he could absolutely not talk to media, even six or seven years after uh, what happened. So that's a very odd case. Another one is uh, Christian Courcel, who is a, a Canadian uh, man. If I name him, is because he's adamant, he's really willing to speak up. Um, so Canadian who used to work uh, with Bombardier, who's uh, retired in Thailand, and who swears he wants to be put to a lying detector. He swears on his children that he saw on Vietnamese TV the very next day bits and pieces of MH370 being taken out of the water. And he describes very precisely what he saw during this TV show that was never shown again, um, including uh, the black box, one of the two black boxes, being carried in a container of water back to shore from a Vietnamese um, fishing uh, vessel. So these are two of many super interesting witnesses that uh, I met. And I should say as well that there are a few other people who have told me incredible things, but either for their own safety or, uh, yeah, basically for their own safety, I didn't mention at all what they had to say because, uh, but it's not the case of these uh, two other persons. And one other thing, you mentioned that there was some, uh, a, a very large uh, piece of cargo that was put on the plane that did not go through normal security checks and normal protocols. Yeah, that's absolutely unbelievable as well. And, uh, and again, this is from the official investigation report. Um, you may have heard a lot about mangosteens, which had nothing to do in that plane. I mean, because it was not the right season, etc. So everyone talked about these four tons of fresh mangosteens, which were out of season. There is another part of the cargo, there was 10 tons of cargo, which is 2.5 tons of electronic goods uh, sourced at uh, Motorola and in Penang. And this cargo, which is very poorly described and identified in the... Um, uh, airway uh, bill, happens to have been loaded without being scanned. This is, this is a no-no. I happen to know very well the head of cargo of Cathay Pacific, and I asked him, does that happen if you are in a rush and you suddenly have important cargo to load? He said, no way, no way. You do not load unscanned cargo on a plane. Now we have two 0.5 tons of electronic cargo which was not scanned, why 
supposedly because it was too big. But you know what they say it is? They say it's talkie-walkies and battery chargers. I've never seen a, a talkie-walkie you know, too big to go through an X-ray scan. And even if it was too big to go through the Penang X-ray scan, when you reach Kuala Lumpur International Airport, of course they have big machines. So there is a, a massive question mark on that cargo, which not only has been loaded without being scanned, but that has been escorted. So it was delivered to KLIA under escort. And again, this does not happen. We lived in Malaysia several years. It's not like Russia in the 80s where trucks had to be escorted on the highways, right? So these are two enormous red flags about this, uh, this cargo. And that's why I eventually come to um, a scenario where uh, the, the, it's possible that the mission that took place was an attempt of uh, cargo confiscation uh, operation because I think this cargo, which is very problematic, has something to do with um, the fate of MH370. I'm going to leave my questions there and let the audience uh, pick up here. And Oh, <laughs> one and two right there. <laughs> number one, number two. <laughs> uh, thank you, Florence, so much. Thank you, Mike. Um, if I was losing my uh, conspiracy uh, bit of my body, you've just refreshed Back. it. I'm, a, um, I'm sorry about that. Very nicely. <laughs> um, look, I'd... Uh, something was put on the plane which caused it to be destroyed or someone shot it down. Um, that's one thought. The second thought is that only governments are big enough to do things like that. And thirdly, leaving aside that the fact that the BBC International is funded by the MI6. Leaving that aside, the Americans must know because they have monitors everywhere. Of course. So give us a little more. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> Very naughty of you. <laughs> <laughs> well, <clears throat> I'll try and be concise. When I got to uh, the point where I realized, honestly, based on an incredible cluster of evidence, I am surprised myself that I could gather so many evidence pointing at a crash. Um, actually, if we go back to the... Okay. Uh, pointing at a crash towards the end of there, basically um, northeast of Vietnam, around 2.45. I really have a cluster of evidence pointing to the fact that the plane actually crashed, not at all in the Southern Indian Ocean, but just northeast of Vietnam, uh, south of Ainan Island, uh, west of the Paracel Islands, etc. And when I realized that, okay, this is where it happened, I genuinely asked myself, who could have done it? You know, uh, either a crash or, uh, as you said, a, a missile of sorts. Uh, and the Obvious answers are either the US or China, because the plane is arriving into Chinese airspace. And so to try and answer this uh, question, I checked the relationship and the exchanges that took place shortly after the accident between Xi Jinping and Barack Obama. 
And to my great, great surprise, there was a phone call the next day between Xi Jinping and Barack Obama, a phone call that was never reported in the Western press, but was very abundantly reported in the Chinese press. And the Chinese press don't make up stories with Xi Jinping calling Barack Obama. We can trust them for that, right? And they did mention that MH370 was discussed. And I was so puzzled as to why would the American side hide the fact that there was a conversation about MH370. The entire world was talking about it at the time. CNN was 24-7 about MH370. So already there, I thought it was very strange. Yet they did, in the White House archives, you can't find the trace of this phone call. So they admit, I mean, they, they acknowledge that the phone call took place. But they list a lot of things that were discussed but not MH370. So I'm like, what's, what's their problem? What's wrong with discussing MH370? That was a first little thing which I thought was funny. And then I looked at the next time these two big men meet, and it happens in The Hague. There is a, a summit of denuclearization, and it happens in the embassy, in the residence of uh, the uh, US ambassador there. And you have Barack Obama speaking for like, 10 minutes saying how, uh, you know, his good friend Xi Jinping is so happy to see him and thank you so much for welcoming my wife and my mother-in-law and my two daughters in China. They're seeing the pandas, they're playing ping pong. Uh, we're discussing climate change, nuclear, blah, blah, blah. And then he passed the mic to uh, Xi Jinping. And honestly, when I was looking for some kind of clue, it was better than anything I could hope for. Xi Jinping starts speaking and he says, Mr. President, two weeks ago, we had a phone call about MH370. After that, you sent me a special letter saying your agencies were going to cooperate. It's unbelievable. He's basically saying, man, you're not off the hook. Stop sweeping the story under the carpet and let's talk. And you know, these are little things. No one picked it because the journalists who were there, they were there to cover the summit. Mm -hmm. So anything that doesn't relate to the denuclearization summit is not for them. So they don't even listen. But when you look at all these little clues together, you end up having a pretty pixelized image, but it's less and less pixelized the more you add these little things together. Yeah. Uh, Joel had one next to you, over here. Yes, Florence. First, thank you very much for your amazing job. I think it's great investigation and so much to say more about that. There is, if I may say, two points that I would like to come back. First, in your presentation, you highlight that there were two IWACs, American plane, on the site there, which is extremely unusual. Uh, is there some way you could find why they were there and what these guys have, could have done. So maybe yes, maybe no. And uh, the second thing is um, knowing from the aeronautic industry that uh, all manufacturers of engines know at real time where the engines are from because all engines are emitting signals who make the, not the plane manufacturer, but the engine manufacturers 
knows how all the engines are working and if they are working well and where are they located at real time. Mm. Have you had some uh, connection with Rolls-Royce, the manufacturer of the B777 mm -hmm. engine manufacturer, mm -hmm. to know where they have recorded these two engines were? Yeah. Actually, um, I have a very good source at uh, Rolls-Royce, and uh, the person told me that they absolutely did not uh, confirm the initial scoop, which was made by the Wall Street Journal, that the plane had continued to fly. And what is very interesting is that when this news broke, that the plane had continued to fly, which is kind of the first step of the narrative which was going to unfold after that, in the minutes and hours that followed, you had Boeing and Rolls-Royce both saying, that's not true, that's not true. Like, supposedly, with what we know, we can't say that the plane continued to fly uh, for uh, many hours. Um, and actually, at the time, even CNN came out and said, our best source in aviation is telling us that the Wall Street Journal scoop is wrong. So you had a window where the story was wobbly, there it was launched with the scoop of the Wall Street Journal, but it was not yet confirmed. What do you have after that, a few hours later? The White House confirming it. What can you do? It becomes true. So uh, yeah, uh, Boeing and Rolls-Royce. Boeing has been incredibly silent about this whole thing. And I've talked with many heads of civil aviation in many different um, countries. And all of them say the silence of Boeing in this affair is in itself a, a clue. Um, yeah. Uh, and one more. <laughs> Mark Michelson, Florence, it's terrific. You've, 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 you've worked at this a long time. Uh, you keep going despite all the challenges and so on. But what's, what I still don't quite understand is not, not that the, real, that the uh, truth is not exactly out or it's not clear, but I, I, you, know, you said at the beginning that people believe the story. I, I certainly didn't believe you the didn't. story. No, and I think a lot of other people didn't because it was so inconsistent. It wasn't that I knew what it was. But given all you've said, what, I can understand why governments might cover it up. I can understand why institutions, companies may cover it up. Why has no one else been chasing this, this story? Because what you've, what you've brought, even what you've said today, mm -hmm. is just so clear that there's, there's some real questions to be raised. I'm really glad you did it. But it's been, been a media cover-up too? Um, it's a question I'm asking in the book as well. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I'm shocked. That's why I wrote the book about it. I agree. Uh, one more. Thank, thanks, Mark. Richard Harris. Um, if the aircraft went dark a bit hard, that would imply uh, some kind of catastrophic failure, uh, which is almost certainly going to be something like a bomb, absolutely catastrophic failure. Um, have you or has anybody else checked the manifest to see if anyone on board might have been a potential target? Um, had I had more time, I would have uh, spent it on uh, the passengers, and I did actually uh, study quite a few of the passengers, but I didn't put it in the book. First of all, because I think it's very problematic to potentially um, uh, accuse uh, people, you know, they're not there anymore uh, to defend themselves. Um, but I would say, in short, I think there is at least uh, 
five to six people in the plane who are problematic. Uh, some people are in first class, uh, sitting in first class. They have no reason uh, to be there. They, their status, their uh, social status, does not make them travel uh, first class travelers. Um, and there are a, a few other things. They, some people look like typical as, um, professional military escorts, um, but uh, I haven't researched that enough to basically uh, put it in, uh, in the book. But I think it's another path that should be um, further in investigated, actually. But it's not easy, you know, 239 names. Uh, the lists are not all the same. Uh, there is at least three manifesto, and they're not consistent. Some people are sitting in seats that actually do not exist on the plain uh, map. Uh, so you very quickly get um, lost in uh, details. But uh, honestly, I think that's a good lead to follow. I know we're a couple minutes over our hour, but I do see one more hand on the veranda back there. If you can get a microphone back there, and then if it's a quick one, we might get one more before we wrap up and get you back to your offices. Hey, Florence. Uh, it's rather a grim question, uh, especially for the relatives of the people on the plane, but what do you think, can you speculate on what happened to the bodies? Do you think the US Navy cleaned them up when they did the sweep in the South China Sea? Um, <clears throat> I did not address this question in the book because I think it's uh, extremely um, painful uh, for, uh, for the families to think about it. There is kind of a best case scenario which uh, a friend of here, um, a Swedish friend, uh, hinted, mentioning, reminding me that um, in the 90s, I think there was this massive ferry uh, that sank called the Estonian. And for some reason, because maybe it was actually carrying something very problematic, they decided to completely bury the uh, ferry down below. Bury, they basically made kind of a sarcophage for it. And the best case scenario I could think of is if the plane was touched but still could land somehow, because you probably don't know that, but in the official report, there is a moment where the ATC in Vietnam is telling the ATC in Malaysia the plane is landing at exactly the time I'm saying. So this is, this is unbelievable. The it is in the transcript of the ATCs. At one moment, uh, Vietnam is saying the plane is landing. And this is also very consistent with um, a 243 message that was initially transmitted supposedly by, the, by a US um, plane where it says that uh, MH370 is requesting emergency landing because the cabin is disintegrating. So that's what you say when you've been hit by a missile. But best case scenario, the pilot is so skilled that he managed to somehow land a very wounded plane and the hull is more or less intact and it quickly sinks and then it's buried there. If it is the case, it would be super easy to spot because the place where it happened is not deep at all. And even if there is a massive layer of concrete or sand or whatever, as they did for the Estonian ferry, it would be spotted by any satellite over the region. So um, that's, uh, that's, 
what may have happened. Honestly, I don't want to go into speculating in more gruesome um, scenario uh, because I don't know. And uh, final question for me. You mentioned almost in passing and towards the end of the book that the shooting down later of MH17 in Ukraine may or may not have had something to do with this. Yeah, I was very uh, reluctant to uh, place this. Uh, it initially came from a source and um, and then I tested, I tested the theory that MH17 could be a tit for tat uh, of MH370. It is honestly beyond any probability that you would have two planes of exactly the same company, ex I mean, just the same company, but exactly the same plane, these were twin planes, uh, destroyed four months apart, the first one is full of uh, people from Asia, Chinese mostly, but then uh, Malaysian, Indonesian, etc. And the second one is full of Westerners, mostly um, uh, Australians, uh, Dutch people, etc. And so someone, Intel source, told me that it was a tit for tat, and I thought it was completely crazy. Uh, and I put it to some other people who are in that field, and they said, you know what? It could well be true. And then if you read Noam Chomsky, who tells you that international affairs are run like the mafia, all of this is, I would say, possible. It is even more shocking, and I'm just putting it there in a few lines, yes, in passing. Well, I, th I would urge everybody to read the book. Uh, there are <laughs> copies here, right? Thank you very much. Let's give a warm round of applause for Thanks for listening to this lunchtime talk from the Foreign Correspondence Club here in Hong Kong. Don't forget to see the video of this and all of our other talks on YouTube channel. Simply search for FCC Hong Kong. You can also follow us on Twitter at FCCHK and Instagram at FCCHKFCC. My name is Genevieve Alexander. Thank you for listening. <laughs>